This morning, uh, the title of our sermon is, He Rejoiced Greatly Having Believed in God with His Whole Household. And I'd like to ask you to turn to Acts chapter 16, beginning with verse 25. Acts chapter 16, beginning with verse 25. I love the book of Acts because I love the church. I think that uh, over the course of my life, without fail, the change towards godliness that I've seen in people has been the result of them loving the church of Jesus Christ and being faithful to that church in joy and in sorrow uh, through times where it's easy and times that it's hard. And we see in the book of Acts an account of the beginning of the church. And if we see the exponential growth that the church had in the first couple of hundred years, specifically the first 50 years, and we wonder how it happened, we should open up Acts and see it. Uh, And principally, the way it happened was the just shall live by faith. And boy, the first Christians had faith. They believed God and it was credited to them as righteousness. They believed in Jesus Christ. Well, let's read this morning, Acts 16, beginning with verse 25. This is the word of God and it is eternally true. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Let me back up to verse 22. It's awkward jumping into verse 25. Paul and Silas, I mean, I I have said to some people who like to think that the life of Christians should be every day in every way getting better and better. Uh, People that watch Trinity Broadcasting Network and have claimed the victorious life, I like to point out to them that the book of Acts is the account, sort of, this is sort of, you know, a little thumb sketch thing, But the book of Acts can sort of be described as uh, Paul uh, preaching himself into uh, capital punishment in one town and scarcely escaping in the nick of time, uh, being expulsed from that town, going into a new town, and having not had enough danger and threat to his life, immediately starting to preach again, and immediately having people attack him. That's basically the account of the book of Acts. Again and again and again, the Christians create a riot or get thrown in jail or a shipwrecked. and, And no matter what happens, when they leave the town, they go into another town and they start preaching. And this is just the typical pattern, and that's what we see here. Paul and Silas have been preaching. As usual, there's been something amounting to a riot, and so they're thrown in jail. And we pick up the account with verse 22. The crowd rose up against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, this is the jailer, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword 
and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights, this being the jailer, and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. This is the word of the Lord. And you say, thanks be to God. Would you think with me for a minute about Madison Avenue, which is where we get many of our ads, and ask yourself about Madison Avenue. How do they try to sell things to us? If you're going to buy Irish Spring Soap, um, or if you're going to get a Hummer, for instance, what is the hook? What's, what's the shtick? What's the... What's the, what's the appeal that they try to make close their sale with? Well, there are a lot of different ones, um, but I think we can generally categorize them all as happiness. Madison Avenue is very good at telling you that if you wash with a particular kind of soap or listen to a, a waterproof radio in your shower, that you will be happy, and that's indicated by pictures of you smiling as you scrub your armpits, something I have not done recently. It's amazing how intimate television is, you know. Look at her. She scrubs her armpits. Isn't she happy? Um, now, we can all laugh <clears throat> now that we're all clean this morning as we sit in church, but I often observe Madison Avenue isn't dumb. They know us. They know us very, very well. And if they appeal to us on the basis of happiness, it's probably because they know that we want to be happy. So let's just all admit that Madison Avenue knows we want to be happy, and we do want to be happy. And then let's ask ourselves the question, what is happiness? What's the nature of happiness? Um, if we or our wives and, or our husbands, sons, and daughters are going to be happy, what will characterize our lives if we're happy? Well, I think the best way of indicating what happiness is is by talking about what joy is. And if I were to ask you, why is joy not the normal? Now, I know there's a dishwashing detergent called joy, but anybody that looks at that name as you're walking down the supermarket thinks, what's that about? You know, it doesn't fit. Nobody thinks they're going to have joy from buying products. Why doesn't Madison Avenue use joy? Well, the reason is that joy is a very, very different thing from happiness. Happiness is cheap. Happiness comes from uh, little things like remembering in the middle of Monday that you get to go home and watch Monday night football. And you're happy. But certainly joy will not permeate your home unless maybe your team wins. And then that's just a statement about how pathetic you are. <laughs> that the chief moment of your life is the moment that your team wins. I mean, you talk about no existence. All right, I'll back off. (laughs) 
Happiness does tend to be the result of superficial things like a full stomach and a doze in an easy chair. And we know that. Uh, William Lyon Phelps says this. He says, if happiness truly consists in physical ease and freedom from care, then the happiest individual would be neither a man nor a woman. It would be, I think, an American cow. <laughs> and if you think about it, an American cow is a very contented thing. That's why it chews its cud. But the truth is that the dangers of wealth and the dangers of convenience and the dangers of comfort and the dangers of security is that we lose sight of the principal gifts that God gives to those that he loves. And we see here in this account an account of how not happiness but how joy. It says they rejoiced greatly of how joy comes to a home. And joy is a thing that's very, very different from happiness. Now, let's look at what's going on. How, how does this joy come about? Okay. Well, first of all, I said that the book of Acts is the account of how uh, the Christians boldly and without fear publicly proclaimed, I don't say just talked about because they yelled it, publicly proclaimed the good news of Jesus Christ everywhere they went. And every single time, it's typical, the Jewish leaders sometimes, sometimes others, you know, like when they burn books at Ephesus, sometimes it's, it's, it's the pagans. But every time, people hate it. They hate it. And so they try to either kill them, they beat them, they whip them, they stone them, they put them in prison, they do everything they can to shut them up. And that's just typical. That's what went on here. And it never shuts them up. And in fact, uh, church history tells us by tradition, we don't have proof of this, but it tells us that uh, most uh, certainly not Judas, who killed himself, but most of the apostles died martyrs' deaths. And what a wonderful statement of their faith in Jesus Christ, that they gave themselves up for the gospel. And we see this with Paul here. He's not ashamed. He's not afraid. Because it says in verse 25, he's been whipped to within an inch of his life, and then he and Silas have been thrown in jail, and we see what they're doing in jail. And it says right away that although they've been whipped and imprisoned, um, it says about midnight, they were doing what? They were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. They're in jail. They've been whipped. Whipping often killed people in the ancient world. But they're singing praises to God and they're praying. Now, what had happened? Well, what had happened was that the jailer had been told that he was to do everything he could to keep them from escaping. Uh, normally, the jailer's job is to keep people from escaping, but when there's a particularly heinous offense, then the message is given to the jailer, whatever you do with these people, do not let them escape. And that was the message the jailer was given about Paul and Silas. Whatever happens, don't allow these men to escape. And so he doesn't just put them in the outer part of the dungeon, he puts them in the very inner recesses, it says. And it's a dark, dark night, Paul and Silas would have been in, in these chains and these stocks, so they wouldn't have been able to move their legs. Um, you have maybe been in a situation, not so much anymore on planes, but you've been in situations where you can't move your legs. I don't know about you, but it drives me absolutely wacko. Um, and, and my legs can be free, but if I just have to keep them in one spot, you, know, you begin to think you're going crazy. And think of being 
beaten and then having your legs immobilized. You can't move. And here are Paul and Silas. And they are doing what? They're singing hymns and they're praying. Now, why were they joyful? Well, a man has written this. He says, joy is distinctly a Christian word and a Christian thing. It is the reverse of happiness. Happiness is a result of what happens of an agreeable sort. Joy has its springs deep down inside. And that spring never runs dry no matter what happens. Only Jesus gives that joy. Verse 26 shows us how God responded to their faith and to their love and to their joy and to their prayers. It says, suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. Now, what would be the next thing for a reasonable man to do? You know, he's, he's been beaten, he's been immobilized, it's dark, he's praying, he's singing, and all of a sudden an earthquake comes and, you know, earthquakes can do... Unbelievable damage right here and no damage right here. You know, this road can open up and this house can be as if nothing happened. I mean, surely if you're asleep, you might be wakened. But what are the chances, not just of an earthquake coming at that precise moment, but of an earthquake coming in such a way that everybody in this prison is freed? I've never read uh, in California when these earthquakes come that a particular state prison or federal prison, all of a sudden every single prisoner is free, right? <laughs> But every single prisoner here was freed. Everyone's chains were unfastened, it says in verse 26. Now, anybody who's in a prison like that, let alone in the ancient world, which, you know, any prison today is a cakewalk in America compared to the ancient world, right? Uh, what would you do? Well, the minute the doors were open and the chains fell off, your first thought is escaping. And everybody would have been yelling, what? The doors are open! Run! And let's get out of here. Well, the jailer, who would have been in his home, but would have felt the earthquake, would have wakened. And the, the immediate thought that came to the jailer's mind, we, we can know this just from looking at the, the nature of the job of a jailer in the ancient world, in the Roman Empire. His immediate thought was, it's over for me. And so he would have gotten up to see, to confirm his worst fears. He would have gone outside, and then he would have seen that the jail was open, you know? that his prisoners were gone, that the things that held them had been destroyed by the earthquake. And so he would have realized, as we uh, know today, that no Roman soldier was ever for any reason to allow his prisoners to escape. And the fact that the escape came as an act of God made no difference to them. It's kind of like the old tradition with uh, a, a captain of a ship. The ship goes aground, you're done. It doesn't matter why the ship went aground. It doesn't matter if you got the wrong tide tables. It doesn't matter if your, your navigator was asleep on the job. If your ship runs aground, you're done. Well, that's the nature of Roman justice when it came to a man like a jailer. His life was over. He would have paid for the escape. Even though it was an act of God, he would have paid with his life. And so what does the jailer do? Well... The jailer does what any man of honor would have done. He turned his sword toward his own breast because it would be better for himself to take his life than be exposed to the public humiliation and shame of being tried in the Roman justice system and being uh, meted out the justice of being executed publicly. It's much easier to handle it yourself in the thick of the night immediately because it gives you more honor than being shamed in public. So he takes his sword, he puts it to his breast, and he's about to kill himself 
when joy of joys, what happens? Well, Paul. Paul, verse 28, cries out with a loud voice saying what? Don't harm yourself, for we are all here. Now put yourself in the jailer's shoes. Your life is over. An earthquake came. Your prisoners have escaped. You're about to kill yourself. You have a family, a household behind you, and you've died to it. You've died to everything except that sword going into your breast. And then you hear one of the prisoners, and maybe he was even able to identify that it was the one more than any other one he was not to let escape. And the guy yells out. He says, don't kill yourself. We're all here. And you look up and you think, how could it be? They're all free and they're all here. But you allow yourself a little hope, but not enough to just be done with thoughts of death. What you do is you call for lights, and that's the next thing that the jailer did. It says that he asked for lights to come. You look at verse 29, he called for lights, and then he rushed in, and what? You see what it says there? Trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. He goes right to the matrix, the, the, the very center of his fear, which is the, these two men that he has been warned above all else not to let escape. These two men who just cried out to him and said, we're all here. And he goes right to them. Now, put yourself in the, in the Roman jailer's shoes. Uh, who do these men represent to him? You know, um, think if there was some street preacher who was busted in, in Vegas. All right, and we were still in the ancient world, and he was told, whatever you do, keep this guy in jail. Don't let him escape. What would you think, being the jailer, the prison guard, prison keeper in Vegas, if some street preacher was put in? All you'd have in your brain is, you know, doesn't this guy get it? This is Sin City. You know, he's some religious dude. I don't know why everybody's worked into a tizzy about this guy, but all right, they want me to keep him, I'll keep him. In other words, the jailer hasn't thought much about this guy other than he's some religious freak. That's probably the extent of his thought about Paul and Silas. He's here not because he's picked pockets, not because he's tried to you know, bust in on the slot machines, not because he's part of the mob. He's here because of religion. I don't get it, but I'll keep him. You know? And then all of a sudden, the earthquake hits. You're about to take your life. This very man, this religious man, religion is something that weak people give themselves to. Certainly not a soldier, not, not a prison, captain of a prison, right? This very man is the man that saves your life. Now, there's one thing a Roman guard, a Roman soldier, understands it's life. Because his job is life and death. And all of a sudden, he receives his life back from the hands of, of this religious nut, this freak. Now, he might not have thought he was a freak. For all we know, he might have attended Paul's preaching before he had to guard him. But I doubt it. I doubt whether he was anything other than just a normal prison guard. And I've had a number of them in my church up in Wisconsin because we were surrounded by state and federal prisons. And, you know, they're a flea-bitten lot. Uh, prison guards are not, shall we say, the most sensitive individuals on the face of the earth. You know, if you know anything about the lives they lead... Uh, one of them worked in uh, the place where uh, Jeffrey Dahmer was incarcerated in Portage. And uh, he, he used to tell me that he spent his life, he was a cook in the kitchen and he had to work with inmates in the kitchen. They had to use knives. 
And he just always thought about his inmates holding knives next to him in the kitchen, you know. Well, I don't know why he had those thoughts, you know. I, I can't, this is a joke, <laughs> you know. <laughs> the poor guy. <laughs> well, anyhow, here this prison guard is. He's probably a pretty tough character. And there is Paul giving him back his life. Now, up until this point, this Roman soldier's entire life was duty and responsibility. He lived to be faithful, and he lived to carry out orders. This is what any military man is supposed to do. He had his orders with these men. It was guard them securely is the word that you use. Securely, securely. Do not let them escape. So as he is about to kill himself, he sees a glimpse of Paul. And may, we don't know, since he was in an inner cell, we don't know how he connected, but he did go straight to Paul when the lights were brought. And we also know that Paul knew he was about to kill himself. So whatever the visual, visual situation was, it, it seems apparent that they could see each other. He went into this inner cell, and he's about to kill himself, and Paul says not to, he shouts not to with a loud voice, and... So he calls for light. He goes in. The lights are brought. The jailer plunges into the dungeon, comes up to Paul, and throws himself in front of Paul, falling, it tells us, on his knees in front of Paul and Silas. And it says he was trembling. Okay, now put yourself in the jailer's shoes. You were dead. 30 seconds ago, it was over. And now you're in front of the man who says we're all here. You're trembling, you're on your knees. What's the next thing you say? Well, uh, I don't think the next thing I say is what must I do to be saved. I mean, it seems kind of crazy. You know, I think what I would say is, thank God you're here. Look, I promise, from here on out, I'll do what I have to do. But let me tell you, this will be the best jail experience you've ever had. Now, obviously, he's going to be filled with gratitude, right? He's going to do anything he can to make Paul and Silas particularly, since they're the spokesmen. He's going to make their life better, right? But... The one thing you would never expect him to say is to throw himself on his knees, trembling, and to say, what must I do to be saved? And so I ask you, that's the riddle of this text. Every text has a riddle. And I ask you, where did that question come from? Where does that question come from? Sirs, what must I do to be saved? If anything, we would think that he was fixated on his superiors. Giving an accounting to them of the earthquake, how the prison was completely kaboomed. All right? uh, he should have been fixated on all of the dangers he had escaped, the dangers he still faced. He should have been fixated on making sure now that they were all present to immediately get them back into bonds, maybe take them into his home so they're nice bonds, the bond of honor. You won't leave, will you? You know? But that's not what he says. He says, what must I do to be saved? Now, do you remember another man in Scripture that asked this same question? You remember the account of the Jewish religious leader named Nicodemus? The religious leaders all hated Jesus. 
But you remember that Nicodemus came to Jesus. You remember it was the same time of day. It was nighttime. Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. Why? Because he was afraid of being seen. But why? Well, because his soul was hungry. Because he knew that he was lost. And he asked the same question. He said to Jesus, what must I do to be saved? Let me ask you this question. Is this a question that's even in your mind? Have you ever thought, let alone ask someone the question, what must I do to be saved? Well, an easy answer to that question is, well, I don't understand why I would think I was lost. You know, I mean, we've got, you know, little handheld GPS devices. There's no need for anybody to be lost today. When we were in, uh, down in Mexico a couple of weeks ago, we were eating at this little taco stand. We got talking with this couple from South Africa, and they'd sailed from South Africa over to Mexico. They were in their 70s, and we asked them how big their sailboat was, and they said 28 feet. And I went, whoa. <laughs> You know, crossing the Atlantic in a 28-foot boat, that sounds scary to me. And they said, oh, no, it's really nothing, you know. After all, think of how big the ocean is. After the ocean is that big, it doesn't really matter whether your boat's 25 feet or 50 or 100 feet. It's, it's, it's tiny on the Atlantic Ocean. And that made sense to me. And then I asked them about navigation. And they said, well, it used to be that you had to have some skill to navigate. But they said, with, with GPS, as long as you have an extra unit, in case your first one goes down, basically they said, any idiot can sail. So what's with this guy that he says, what must I do to be saved? Is he lost? Did he not know where he was? You know, maybe the torches had gone out after they entered the prison. You know, lack of oxygen. What is he talking about when he talks about being saved? And what was the meaning of this thing lost? Yesterday, my nephew, Chris Taylor, was uh, telling us the account of how the Lord drew him back to himself. I hope, Chris, you don't mind if I repeat the central point. But Chris had grown up uh, hearing Scripture, being taught the Word of God, but he gave himself to the normal life of a high school student in uh, a Chicago suburb. And that meant that he had a bunch of friends that weren't real neat, you know, the kind of people that hang out at certain fraternities that I... uh, Actually, every dorm probably. And uh, so one night his parents were gone and he had something approximating a party in his home. He didn't call it a party, but there were a fair number of people there. And his mother loves the Victorian period and has a bunch of antiques. And he, he said that that night as these people were running around and I took it basically acting crazy in his parents' house, his parents were gone, and he had ingested various items that were foreign to his body, that he was lying in the middle of the living room floor, and all of a sudden it hit him like a sledgehammer. What? It hit him that he was lost, that he was completely lost. And he realized that he couldn't move on the floor. He'd get, send messages to his arms and legs and tell himself, get up, you know, you've got to go to the bathroom or something like this. And there was no response. And so then what did he do? He cried out to Jesus and he said, Lord Jesus, help me. 
Lord Jesus, help me. Lord Jesus, help me. Now, if you look at Chris, stand up, would you please, Chris? <laughs> Turn around. Turn around. You know, he doesn't look like somebody that needs help. And one of my favorite things about Chris is he can barefoot ski. He doesn't need help. And yet, there this young man about to hit the prime of his life on the floor of his parents' house, immobilized, unable to move. And what does he do? He says, Lord Jesus, help me. Now, someday I hope you get to hear the rest of the story. Jesus did help him. And here the Philippian jailer is, and he says, what must I do to be saved? Chris was powerless, and the Philippian jailer was lost. And they both go to the source. Philippian jailer goes to Paul, who is a representative of Jesus, and he says, what must I do to be saved? You know, what I think is going on here, I think the answer to the riddle is that this man, who his whole life had been in control, yeah, he had been a subordinate, he'd been under authority, he'd done what he was commanded to do, but in his little sphere, namely the prison, and before that it might have been the battlefield, and certainly in his home, when he spoke, it was the voice of God. If a soldier disobeyed him, that soldier's life was gone like that. It's an indication of how intense his authority was, of how intense his submission was, that the act was to kill himself if he was found unfaithful. Okay? This man's life is very clear. All right? And then all of a sudden, something happens that completely busts your pride, completely removes all your hope of the future, all your expectations, all your contentment, all your happiness, and shows it to be completely empty. Your life is at an end. You're about to kill yourself. And then, by God's mercy, this religious freak who's in your jail is the source of your salvation. And at that moment, all of us, our hearts are stripped naked. It's not our bodies, our hearts. And all of a sudden, as we look into our hearts, we remember that every single second of every single day, God's Spirit has given us a knowledge of our sinfulness and of the fact that it is appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. All of a sudden, all those repressed, all those submerged, all those uh, sort of forgotten memories of the holiness of God that we had since we were a child, since before we could speak, and all of our awareness of the inclination that we have every single day to go our own way, to be our own boss, to do what we want to do, to not listen to the needs of our wives or our husbands, to not discipline and love our children, but to view them as a gnat and a nuisance. All those inclinations we have not to study until the night before the exam, all those inclinations we have to embezzle, you know, you want to know what our hearts are made of. Pick up any Pulp Fiction novel in any store of the United States of America. Open it up at random and just read. And this is the stuff that we suck in for our entertainment and then deny when it comes to thinking about death. You understand this? And all of a sudden, this man is broken. Everything that he used to control his life and to keep himself secure was gone and he was about to kill himself. And then he got his life back. He was, as it were, born again. 
And at that moment, he allows all these memories and all these thoughts, all the awareness of God and his glory and his holiness and all his awareness of his own sin to well up to the surface. No longer are all these levels of happiness and contentment and an easy chair in between him and reality. The reality comes to the surface at this moment of death. And he says, I plead guilty. I am the problem. What do I have to do to be saved? And so it's not really a non sequitur. It's not really a riddle. It's, it's not really hard to understand at all. It's actually perfectly logical to anybody who allows himself for a second to remember that the reason they ice fish is so that they can forget their sin. Now, what is the response? It's a very simple one. Look at your Bibles. Verse 30, we see the question, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And then we see the response of these preachers of Jesus. And the response is this. They said, believe in the Lord Jesus. Four words. And if you count Lord Jesus as a name, three words. One command, believe. And then the source of your belief is what? Believe in the Lord Jesus. Believe in the Lord Jesus. And then the promise. And, okay, if you do this, then, and you will be saved, you and your household. Now, we already know it doesn't mean that he's going to get his life back, right? But he already did. They're safe. He doesn't have to kill himself, so he stopped. He put the sword down. Nobody's talking now about whether or not he'll commit suicide. Nobody's talking now about whether his family will also be killed by the Roman authorities because he was unfaithful. They're all in jail. Everything's safe. So what in the world can be talked about when it says, and you will be saved, you and your household? Well, look back to the beginning of the sentence, you see. It says, they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Now, at this point, we can look at this and we can say, what's going on here? Believe in the Lord Jesus. But since you're in America, you would be hard-pressed to, to, to argue that you really have no clue what's going on here when it says believe in the Lord Jesus. After all, the, the magazines and the newspapers are... All telling us that Billy Graham at 80-some, 84, 85 years old is going to have one more crusade, right? And anybody that's ever been alive in America almost is at some point turned on a television or a radio or opened up a book or a newspaper or listened to him interviewing. I can remember when he was in Boston for a crusade and I heard him being interviewed in Boston. And what's Billy Graham's relentless message? Again and again and again, he says the same thing. It's an amazingly and boringly dependable message. And the message still today is believe in the Lord Jesus. Now, why would you believe in the Lord Jesus? And why would that save you? And what are you being saved from? Again, listen, the Philippian jailer allows this moment of complete humiliation to put him back in touch with his awareness of the sinfulness of his heart and of the fact that before a holy God, he is lost. I mean... There are times where 
you know, with jokes, you either get it or you don't. And this isn't a joke. This is the most serious thing on the face of the earth. And you either get it or you don't. But you know something, as a preacher today, myself, I know you do get it. Meeting with the most hardened sinners, meeting with uh, a number of years ago with a man on the university campus whose job was of the essence of things that none of us approve of, a man who had grown up in a very strong biblical home. He told me this as we sat there. And I looked at him and I said, I know that you get it. I know that you know the truth. And it was very interesting, despite all the lies of that lunchtime, at that moment, he didn't deny it. And I know this morning, you get it. I know that you are aware of the fact that you are lost, and it's because you have shaken your fist in front of a holy God. You have gone your own way. You have, all we like sheep, it says in Scripture, have gone astray. We have, each of us, turned his own way. And then it says, and the Lord has laid on him, Jesus Christ, the sin, the iniquity of us all. And so at that moment, he's not saying, how can I be saved from you know, not knowing where I am in the Roman Empire? How can I be saved from the wrath of my superiors tomorrow when they see their jail is broken? How can I be saved from you, know, you being angry at me from beating you a few minutes ago when you obviously have supernatural powers and who knows, maybe you're about to kill me also? You know, what he's saying is, how can I be saved from my position, which is hopeless before a holy God? I admit to you what I have always repressed in my mind, which is there is no hope for me before God. Tell me how I can have peace with God. How how do I deal with my sin? Now, this Roman guard is asking this question shortly after another religious leader did die. And that was Jesus. And he died by being nailed to a cross and being allowed slowly to suffocate until he gave up his spirit. And that's all that Paul and Silas and Peter and all of the preachers of the book of Acts preached over and over and over again was the cross of Jesus Christ. And then they said that despite man killing him, sinful man, and often they were preaching the very people that did kill him. If you look at the beginning of the book of Acts, often they will say, you yourselves killed him. And then they say he died. And then God, his father, raised him from the dead. And that's all their sermons are. Jesus died, and then God the Father vindicated him. God the Father was his hero, his champion. God rescued him from the grave. And that's all that Paul and Silas would have preached to this Philippian jailer. They preached to him what? That he could be saved through the Lord Jesus. How? It's a simple thing. And it says what? It says, verse 32, And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in the house. So in other words, the initial exchange is this. What must I do to be saved? The simple summary of the hope he has given to him by Paul and Silas in behalf of God is, yes, you are hopeless. And here's what God has decreed. God has decreed that not only will we stay in this jail saving your life. We could have left. We stayed. But he has decreed that you may be saved if you will believe in Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus. In fact, you and your whole household will be saved. And now, let's go inside. So they go in the house, and they begin to open up the good news about Jesus Christ. All right. So what was the good news? 
Very simple. The death of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and more specifically, the death. Because the death of Jesus Christ was that Jesus came to earth and went up on the cross and there bore the sins of that jailer. You say to me, well, how do you know he bore the sins of the jailer? And I say, because the Bible tells us that then he and his whole household rejoiced because they had believed. And so that's what went on in the house. But you don't get the specifics. It just says what? It says they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And then we see his response, verse 33. He took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds, and immediately he was what? He was baptized. Baptism was the initiation rite for those who believed in Jesus. And that very night, he and his household were baptized. They'd been promised that if he believed, he and his household would be saved. They're baptized. In other words, they believed in Jesus. And so the sign of them being transferred from death to life was put on them. And that was baptism. It was done right away because they believed. Now, if Madison Avenue has a hook, surely I do. And my hook is this. So what's the point of waiting until your life is over, that split second when you see the tree coming in the car? What's the point of waiting that long to ask the question, what must I do to be saved? Don't deny it. Look at your heart. You're completely normal, and that means that your whole life is filled with going your own way. All the rock and roll songs get it right. All the Pulp Fiction novels get it right. All the soaps get it right. They might be a little extravagant in who we are. They might say that we're worse than we actually are. We might not actually have had seven husbands. It might be six. But they do get it right. No matter how much we hate the truth, Scripture says it. It says that we are by nature the objects of wrath. And it's not talking about the wrath of a cheetah or a leopard. It's talking about the wrath of God. God is justly angry at us because we have turned and gone our own way. Stevie Nicks had it right. And so the question is, if you will take the step of standing as the Philippian jailer did before a holy God and his representatives, which is what Paul and Silas were, and you say before them, what must I do to be saved? Then the second question is, Will you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Will you believe that as he hung on the cross, that he paid the penalty for your sins? Now here's the problem. The problem is that's very hard to understand. And only a few people have brains big enough to get it. But I'm joking. There's no problem. God is holy and God has decreed that the penalty against all sin is eternal death. First, the death of the body and then the death eternally in hell. But God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son. And if you've ever had a son, you know what that's talking about. That whoever believes in him will not perish. What must I do to be saved? 
whoever believes in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. It's not complicated. If we believe in the death of Christ to take God's wrath against us away, we are saved. So what's the problem? Why do so many people absolutely not confess that they are lost and ask how to be saved? And why do so many people absolutely refuse to believe in Jesus Christ? Why are churches filled with people who have no faith in Jesus Christ? Why is everybody into religion, but nobody's into Jesus? Why is everybody into Sunday morning, but nobody's into, you know... Okay? I mean, do you understand? It's not pretty. Maybe some of you would be. And the answer is, you have to arrive at the point of putting a sword into your breast. And all of a sudden, it don't matter. Nothing matters. Except to plead guilty and to take the solution. And at that moment, this Philippian jailer, he was transferred from death to life. Why? Because this is the promise of God. Jesus said, Those who come to me, I'll never cast out. God says that he's close to the brokenhearted. And there's nobody more brokenhearted than somebody about to kill themselves. And at that moment, all the pride is gone. And hey, there it is. What does a Hummer represent? And if you drive one, God bless you. I myself have made mistakes. (laughs) I once owned a Lexus LS400. And it was a terrible sin. And I've confessed it before to my congregation. It's not that Christians can't own them. I'm sure the Philippian jailer had a nice car, a chariot. (laughs) But my point is, pride is what makes the world go round. And pride is what keeps us from falling at our knees, trembling before the servants of God and saying, what must I do to be saved? And pride is what keeps us from believing in Jesus Christ. You go into religious services around the world, and there are all these ways that we have put together to avoid the central reality of sin and judgment and mercy. But the Bible tells us that Jesus died for sinners. And it tells us that when he came to this earth, he hung out with them. It tells us that all the religious leaders could not stand Jesus because the people he hung out with were sinners. They thought that he should get their undivided attention. They thought that he should give them their undivi- his undivided attention. There should be a little tete-a-tete between Jesus and all the religious leaders, but instead he hung out with sinners, with publicans, with prostitutes. He hung out with tax collectors, which is what publicans were. He hung out with Samaritans, the Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus had mercy on people who admitted that they were lost and asked, what must I do to be saved? And the response when they believed? Well, look at the Bible. It says, verse 34, you remember what had happened. He washed their wounds. He took them into the house. He explained the gospel to them. And then he baptized them and the household and the jailer. And then it says, verse 34, he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoice greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. So, 
The end of the story is that joy came to that home, not happiness, not another peaceful night having dreams of being faithful and keeping your captives captive, but joy. Joy around a table eating food. So this morning, God has put me here as his representative with you. I'm here to tell you that your life is as hopeless as the Philippian jailer. I'm here to tell you that you are lost. I'm here to tell you that when you cry out, what must I do to be saved? The answer remains the same. And the answer is, believe in the Lord Jesus. Believe in his death for your sin. Believe in his resurrection as a promise of what will happen to you when you die. That you will not go to eternal death in hell, but that having believed in Jesus, you'll be lifted up into the presence of God where there is exceeding joy forevermore. It's a simple transaction. Easier and quicker than buying a lottery ticket. But it requires complete brokenness before the living God. And so I plead with you this morning to fall on your knees trembling before the living God and his representatives and to believe in Jesus Christ. And if you do with us who believe, you will have joy.